Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello, listener. This is uh, Mark here. Um, it's just to let you know that unbeknownst to us while we were recording this episode, uh, my connection actually wasn't working from my side, so it was sort of cutting in and out, which means we've sort of had to chop up the podcast a little bit to try and avoid as much disruption as possible. In one sense, it's actually worked out the better for you because it means you get to hear more um, of our excellent guest this week speaking rather than myself in an episode that had actually run long anyway. And while I'm here anyway, I might as well just say thanks uh, to all of you who have listened to the podcast and have made possible the good news that I am going to mention at the start of the episode. But anyway, on with the show. Um, You might recognise the next voice coming up. Black History Month you find ridiculous. Why? You're going to relegate my history to a month? Oh, come on. What do you do with yours? Which month is White History Month? Well, well, come on, tell me. Well, uh, I'm Jewish. Okay, which month is Jewish History Month? Uh, There isn't one. Oh, oh, why not? Do you want one? No, no, no. I I, I, I don't either. I don't want a Black History Month. Black history is American history. How are we going to get rid of racism? Stop talking about it. I'm going to stop calling you a white man. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you to stop calling me a black man. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of American History 2. I'm Malcolm Craig and as usual I'm joined by my colleague Mark McClay. Hello, Malcolm. I come to you from a, a snowstorm-ridden Glasgow as a, as it currently flying by my sixth floor window here. Um, how are you? Very well, thank you. Very well. I believe you're going to relate some uh, good news we've had to our listeners. Yeah, I mean, we're absolutely delighted to have received funding from uh, the British Association for American Studies in, in conjunction with the U.S. Embassy. Um, so over the, the next kind of couple of months, months, we'll be rolling out some big upgrades and changes to things like the website and the, the hosting and the, the logo and everything. Um, but obviously, the, the basic mission of the podcast is, is going to stay the same, but it's exciting times ahead. Yep, great, fantastic. And today we're delighted to be joined by the University of Birmingham's uh, James West. So welcome, James. And could you just tell us a little bit about your research before we get started? Uh, Yeah, sure. Uh, So first of all, thanks, obviously, for having me on. Um, So my my research mainly centers on kind of African-American print uh, media culture. Um, So my PhD, uh, which I did at the University of Manchester, focused on uh, Ebony Magazine, which is a kind of one of the most popular American, uh, black American magazines. Uh, and then kind of more broadly out of that, 
um, kind of got an interest in using African-American print media to look at uh, kind of cultural and intellectual history, black business history, um, you know, relationship between race, consumer activism, corporate responsibility, uh, those kind of things. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. Fantastic. So our topic today relates very closely to your research. We're going to be looking at the history of Black History Month. Now, I can't help but observe that we are three white guys sitting here discussing Black History Month. Now, obviously, Mark and I compounded that by, you know, we were the ones that invited you onto that, but onto the podcast. But this is a bit problematic, is it not? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. Short answer, yes. Long answer, yes, as well. Um, It's it's certainly an issue, um, and it's something certainly within the British Academy that's that's exacerbated um, and you've you've probably both of you have probably been on panels where this is the case where you you're discussing African-American history or you're discussing the history of civil rights um, and it, yeah everyone everyone's white most of the audience is white um, and there's kind of a it's, it's the elephant the, uh, the the white elephant in the room so to speak um, I mean in terms of how I understand or, or relate to that um, as, as it being a problem um, I don't really think that I've kind of had a fully formed response when people have asked me that. Um, certainly in the States is a question that I get asked a lot more, um, particularly from older black academics um, who were raised in kind of quite a nationalist oriented school of, of uh, historiography or historical thought. So they're ob- um, often very interested in why a kind of white British guy is, uh, is interested or, or carrying out research on, on African-American history. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, I could say a little bit more about kind of the specific problems and how they relate to the, the UK Academy. Um, but I don't know if you want to jump in. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, personally, I, I think it's a very fair point that you, that you raise, Malcolm. In my experience, um, at almost every university I've, I've studied at, I've taught at, it's a very white environment. Um, and I, I personally felt very awkward being at all white civil rights panel discussions at, at conferences. And also I felt awkward conf- like commenting on American race relations in my own thesis. But, you know, as I, I don't think there's, there's much of a way around it. Does that mean we should talk about it? Well, well, no. And I mean, I suppose in one positive, uh, the, the, you know, a lot, all, the, all the readings that we've kind of done, I think, ahead of this podcast that James kindly provided us with is drawing on the work of black scholars largely. Um, which is a positive thing. But maybe, James, I'd be interested to hear what you were going to say with specific reference to the British Academy. Um, yeah, I think certainly over the last the last couple of years, this is this has been a, a bigger issue and, and there's really great work being done. So um, Kahinde Andrews and the team at Birmingham City University, who are currently putting together the first Black Studies uh, course in, in Europe, um, have been very vocal on, on this issue. Um, you have projects like the Why Is My Curriculum White campaign, um, people like Adam Elliott Cooper, who was originally UCL and uh, he, was, he was at Warwick on a teaching fellowship and I think he might have moved again and, um, and other people who were involved in that. Um, but yeah, I mean, just kind of specifically, three white guys on, on this podcast talking about black history, um, maybe not the best. Um, but then also in terms of more broadly, um, you know, you have very real and significant problems uh, with with kind of racial inequities in, in, in British uh universities so you know runnymede which is kind of the uk's leading independent think tank on race equality um they've produced reports that have shown that uh you know black british students are significantly less likely to attend elite universities uh they're much less likely to achieve a 2-1 or a first class grade um at a faculty level 
recent research has shown that um, black British staff represent just 85 out of you know more than eight and a half thousand university professors in the UK. Um, so this is it's very much a kind of systemic and a, and a broader problem. Um, and, and like you say, you know, does this mean that we that we shouldn't talk about the subject? Um, no, I don't think that's the case. Um, but I think it's certainly important to use it as you know as a teachable moment or to to open up these broader discussions about about race in the academy. Um, and that is particularly true in the UK because a lot of what we learn about race is almost kind of offset from the United States. Uh, so when we learn about race in in, in, in kind of college or, or at GCSE, often we're learning about civil rights. We're not learning about, you know, the Brixton riots or the 981 riots or, or kind of racist by-elections in, in Smethwick in Birmingham. You know, we don't really learn that history. Um, so that's certainly a, something that we can do a lot better. Yeah, I mean, I can't disagree with any of that. And I think, I mean, you both alluded to the fact, that, I mean, it's crucial that we kind of, we acknowledge the position we're in. It's been interesting reflecting on my own teaching uh, recently. And so currently one of the courses I'm teaching is called the American Presidency, which kind of is dominated by white men uh, at all levels of, of policy through the 18th, 19th and, and 20th century. And I've been very conscious of trying to bring other voices uh, into that, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, talking about sub-Saharan African responses to American foreign policy to do with civil rights and all that kind of thing, bringing in the voices of uh, individuals like uh, Harriet Jacobs or Frederick Douglass, but it is—I mean—it's a challenge, and I think something we need to we need to acknowledge you know, more and more in our teaching and our research, and I think no matter what we're working in, I think so. I mean, these are—I mean—it's a very valuable conversation to have. So, but let's 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 turn. Uh, I mean, this is all critical stuff. But I'd like to turn really to the the subject of today's discussion. So. Uh, Jacqueline Dowd Hall uh, wrote in her still extremely relevant and excellent article, The Long Civil Rights Movement and the Political Uses of the Past. She said that regarding the civil rights era, yet remembrance is always a form of forgetting and the dominant narrative of the civil rights movement distilled from history and memory, twisted by ideology and political contestation and embedded in heritage tours, museums, public rituals, textbooks and various artefacts of mass culture, distorts and suppresses as much as it reveals. This strikes me as a a pretty good place to start our discussion about Black History Month. So, I mean, so James, do you think this is a useful encapsulation of the ways in which the, the civil rights movement is remembered and misremembered? Um, yeah, I, th- I think it. I think it still is. Um, I think both in terms of you know that idea of remembrance as a as a form of forgetting um, fits particularly well with the way in which uh, Black History Month is kind of mediated. And um, so every year you kind of have this rollout of uh, Frederick Douglass or Martin Luther King, and you have these kind of acceptable heroes who who we kind of recognise and celebrate. Um, but it's done in, in quite a mediated way, um, and you know a way that that scholars have described as a form of kind of positive amnesia. Um, which is often a lot harder to combat than the standard approach to kind of black history for much of the 20th century, which was basically just ignoring it uh, for a lot of the time. Um, I, th- I think also that um, this this idea or the way that Jacqueline Dowdhall talks about civil rights um, helps us to think about it being kind of pervasive. So I already mentioned the idea of the way that we learn about civil rights in the UK Um as an example, you know, the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool, they have a building that's named after Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, and that's great. But also, to what extent is that relevant to a British-based institution? Um, maybe that could be named or it could be framed in a different way. You know, people already know who King is. We don't need more buildings named after King necessarily. Um, so I think certainly Hall's ideas and the co-critique kind of feed into that. 
So are there particular critiques, do you think, of this idea of the kind of the long civil rights thesis, looking at the civil rights movement just outside of the the 50s and the 60s, where it's often remembered as being centred? Yeah, I think that, I mean, particularly this idea of the long civil rights thesis has often been taken to kind of mean backwards. So scholars have done a very good job of tracing that history backwards um, and talked about the long civil rights movement and connecting civil rights and black power back, you know, through race relations in the first half of the 20th century and back to kind of black reconstruction and, and earlier. Um, but I think we could certainly do a lot more in, in tracing that history forward. Uh, so Stephen Tuck uh, is one scholar who's argued that, you know, far from belonging in the post-civil rights area, the, the, the 70s is actually this kind of high mark, watermark for the black liberation movement. Um, and what we're seeing now, particularly with kind of the kind of resurgence of campus activism and uh, the rise of Black Lives Matter, um, we're seeing more attempts to kind of trace that that long civil rights movement forward as well as backwards. So we're looking to kind of connect this this moment in the 50s and 60s and saying, well, hang on, this this struggle is not necessarily over. Let's let's trace it forward through the 70s, 80s, 90s and to the present. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think to sort of pick up on your your original question, Malcolm, about the the sort of use of the civil rights movement as an era of of remembrance and remembrance being sort of a form of forgetting. I mean, I think as well, it's it's very much been sanitized uh, in many ways how the civil rights movement in that era is taught. I mean, I always begin my lectures on the sixties and looking at the civil rights movement by getting students to sort of guess what they think Martin Luther. King's final approval rating was um, that was taken by Gallup before he was assassinated. And they always seem quite surprised to learn that like 63% of Americans disapproved of Martin Luther King uh, in 1966 when the last poll was taken. And, and King's sort of views on Vietnam, his critiques of American capitalism, the fact he was, he was trying to organise a poor people's campaign um, just before he was assassinated are, are often sort of brushed over. Um, and the remembrance of them. And yeah, yeah, I, I think to sort of tackle on to what James said, I think there's been some really excellent historiography that started to catch up the narrative of the last 50 years as, as African-American scholars themselves have sort of forced some uncomfortable truths regarding the war on crime and specifically the war on drugs into, into the light in, in over the past five years even. So, Mark, I mean, you talk there about kind of you know other wider issues, and of course, I mean, we kind of in popular memory there's the remembrance of the the seeming in air quotes victories of the civil rights era, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 65 Voting Rights Act, and I think, but there was also this series of of backlashes, if I can use that term, from within both the African American community and from white America. So in terms of this kind of like you know, political backlash, what should we take from that? You mentioned earlier the so-called urban crisis and the kind of the long hot summer of 1967. Yeah, I mean, the, well, the, the civil rights movement in many in many ways, like this sort of what what comes just slightly after it, in many ways defines a lot of uh, American politics um, for, sort of for the decades afterwards. Um, and I mean, I'm not going to go into detail too much on, on the urban crisis and stuff because we've actually got a, a, a podcast planned for it in a, to mark a sort of 50th anniversary of the long hot summer later this year. But I mean, you very much, you know, the, the, the white backlash that emerges from, from sort of the civil rights progress and the perceived increase in violent crime um, and, and the sort of urban riots, or some prefer to call them rebellions that take place in the 60s, is a, a very pervasive in American politics thereafter. And politicians like Nixon and, and especially Reagan will play on 
stereotypes of African-Americans as lazy, as violent, as ungrateful, as welfare recipients uh, to undermine those programs. And there was, there's a quote from Obama about this that I thought particularly sort of the, the difference, different views from white Americans towards government programs and how that's affected the, the past 50 years politics. And Obama said, and apologies, this is quite a long quote, but I think it's instructive. He says, I do believe that if somebody didn't have a problem with their daddy being employed by the federal government, it didn't have a problem with the TVA electrifying communities, it didn't have a problem with the interstate highway system, didn't have a problem with the GI Bill, and didn't have a problem with the, the Federal Housing Association subsidizing the suburbanization of America. And that helped you build wealth and create a middle class. And then suddenly African Americans or Latinos are interesting, interested in availing themselves of so these same mechanisms mechanisms as ladders into the middle class and you now have violent opposition to them then i think you at least have to ask yourself a question of how consistent you are and i think that sort of encapsulates how how race um very much sort of infected these discussions um over over the role of government in american society james um yeah i mean in terms of a kind of the historical context when we talk about the, like the urban crisis or kind of revolts of, of the 1960s. Um, I think it's very important to situate those within a broader history of urban rebellions. Um, and a lot of the time, because the way that often the idea of like the Watts riots or Rochester riots get framed is this kind of uh, African-American antagonism um, or reaction. Whereas for a lot of American history, the idea of race riot is essentially um, kind of white militia terrorism of black communities. And you can trace that back through um, kind of Tulsa in 1921, Atlanta in 1906. You can trace it back to kind of a, the white backlash to reconstruction. Um, I mean, if, if we think about the way in, in which people understand the term race riot, and then you take that idea that's, that's cultivated in the 1960s and then take that and apply it to somewhere like Tulsa in 1921, where you essentially have a, a massacre of black residents by a white militia. You have white militias um, dropping bombs on, on kind of the, the uh, black areas of town from like World War II era planes. Um, you have kind of uh, African American residents being rounded up into internment camps and essentially run out of the run out of the town. Um, it's a completely different image of what a race right is than necessarily we get from just looking at the at the sixties. Can, can I just ask? I sorry, that is fascinating. I've never heard that before. They actually had World War One era aircraft and were dropping bombs on African Americans in Tulsa. Yeah. Um, so if 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 uh, listeners are in, interested in this, um, there's been some kind of uh, a couple of really great documentaries that have come out recently. PBS have done one. There's been an independent documentary on the Tulsa race riot, um, and they've basically shown the extent to which this, you know, it essentially was a white massacre of. Um, black residents and you just mentioned that's this idea of, of the obama quote and talking about the black middle class um one of the reasons was that the greenwood in tulsa actually had a prominent black middle class you know it's known as the negro wall street this area um and part of that reaction was an anger to the ability of, of even in spite of segregation black communities in tulsa being able to build like a, a middle class community for themselves um but yeah i mean there's if you know you can look on youtube or, or there's there's documentaries available um and you can kind of get a sense of the the visual destruction um, of what happens in Greenwood. It's, it's pretty shocking. Malcolm, I mean, drawing on your your expertise of a, a foreign affair, what's the what what kind of legacy does the civil rights movement leave like for for, for America abroad, sort of long term? I mean, I know during the sixties it's seen as sort of a positive symbol for America. You know, the the Russians 
or the Soviet Union no, no longer can use the images that they used to use of, of African-Americans uh, being treated violently, or at least they stop using them to the same extent. Um, I mean, what, what, what's the kind of, how, how does the civil rights movement, how is that perceived abroad? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I'm sorry, I'm still getting over the use of kind of like aircraft to bomb the African-American residents of Tulsa. And sorry. Anyway, so yeah, I mean, I think uh, civil rights intersects in sort of several important ways with Cold War, you know, foreign policy, you know, as an issue in U.S. relations with, you know, emerging independent sub-Saharan African nations, and as an issue that the USSR uses as a propaganda tool. So events like Little Rock, Birmingham, Montgomery, uh, and all the other kind of events of the the civil rights era, if I can use that term, kind of in a global sense, give the lie to American claims of freedom and liberty and democracy and all these kind of things. And this causes you know, problems in diplomatic relations with U.S. allies and the, the decolonizing world and the non-aligned world. You know, and at the same time, you know, these continued U.S. relations with countries like apartheid South Africa you know, cements an image in certain quarters that the U.S. is fundamentally racist and allied to fundamentally racist nations. And the USSR uses this in this Cold War propaganda battle. You know, it portrays itself as this non-racist society devoted to equality, while the US is just positioned as, as hypocritical. And it kind of, this kind of thing brings you know, Kennedy more into civil rights than he had been as fundamentally a foreign policy president. When it starts to really influence foreign policy, he becomes a bit more interested in it. I think Mary Dudziak's brilliant book, Cold War Civil Rights, is still a, a great volume to, to read on this. But, you know, civil rights kind of develops into kind of, you know, all the other kind of rights issues into the, the late 60s and into the, the 70s. And we start to see in the 70s, you know, the emergence of like transnational human rights uh, campaigns and human rights as an issue. And things start to kind of like get all kind of, you know, mashed together and kind of woven around and the US starts fighting its own propaganda battle against the Soviet Union for their persecution of Soviet Jews and all that kind of thing which becomes a kind of a, you know a bargaining chip uh within the 1970s uh Cold War era. So it does I mean it intersects an awful lot with uh, with uh, with Cold War you know foreign policy. So we've kind of discussed kind of briefly about the kind of the positives and negatives of, you know, the history of, of civil rights, the successes and failures. So getting to the kind of the mainstay of our discussion today, how does Black History Month emerge from this period? And, and what does it really tell us about responses to civil rights? So, James, this is this is really your, your area. Is it possible to encapsulate the genesis and the prehistory of Black History Month in a minute or two? <laughs> yeah, OK. Um, so start the clock. Um, so, yeah, so Black, Black History Month is, is formally recognised in the 1970s, um, but we can kind of trace its history back to uh, Carter G. Woodson, uh, who's often described as the, the father of, of Black History or Black History Month. Um, he's a prominent uh, Black historian, and he, he looks to create a formal organisation um, for the study of Black History. And this comes out of 1915. Um, so you have events commemorating the end of the Civil War, um, and he's in Chicago, uh, at the Chicago Coliseum, uh, he, and he's putting on a Black History ex, uh, exhibit there. And this is an overwhelming response from visitors. So African-Americans come from all across the country to, to see exhibits that are, that are going on at the Chicago Coliseum. And out of this, um, the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History uh, is founded. So it's founded a little bit later in 1915. And then the next year, the Journal of Negro History uh, starts. Um, and this is this is often seen as kind of the first wave of really 
black history being professionalized. So you have more kind of amateur or self-taught historians um, during the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, but this is kind of the moment at which black history is, is kind of formalized as an institution. Yeah, I was just wondering, is there, I mean, obviously this kind of 1915 to 1925, you know, in 1915, you've got Birth of a Nation, you know, comes out, the, the, probably one of the most racist films ever made, huge box office smash. And uh, you've got this, the, the, the sort of rise of the KKK. Is, is this sort of assertion of, of, of African-American pride, uh, uh, is it in reaction to that? Or do you think it's happening separately? Um, I think it's definitely connected. I mean, it's not a coincidence that the, the two of the kind of key moments in, in the history of, of the black history movement occur uh, kind of 1915 to 1930, which overlaps obviously with the kind of white reaction, racist reaction, and then also the, the kind of Harlem Renaissance or the new Negro movement. Um, people like Marcus Garvey have a very strong sense of history, Arturo Schomburg, um, these kind of people. Uh, and then later on, Vincent Harding has made the argument that the modern black history revival after World War II is interconnected. It feeds out of and feeds back into the, the rise of the civil rights movement. Um, so certainly these things are, are very much connected to each other. All right. And, and how, does, uh, how, does, uh, how does it eventually evolve into what we know as, as Black History Month then? Um, so the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, um, they, they start to celebrate, uh, to formally celebrate um, Negro History Week. Uh, and this, is, this occurs in February. Um, February um, has been kind of tracing back to, to the late 19th century, um, this uh, moment for commemoration um, in African-American communities. So you have the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and also Frederick Douglass, uh, who both obviously play a seminal role in shaping black history. So these events, that, that's kind of an a formalization of a kind of tradition that's happening already. Um, and then this kind of develops and expands. Um, the association has a more um, active role in kind of shaping the way that this uh, celebration occurs. So, you know, each year there's a theme and it grows and it grows. Um, even before his death in, in 1950, Woodson has spoken about shifting from a kind of black history week to a month or, or even a year. Um, and then in the 1960s, you know, even earlier, as early as the mid-1960s in Chicago, activists are beginning to celebrate Black History Month um, in a fairly formal way. And this moves to college campuses during the late 60s. You know, Black Studies becomes institutionalized. And then eventually this pressure leads to 1976. President Ford has a kind of this official, this federal recognition of the um, expansion of, of Black History Week um, to Black History Month. So, yeah, so, I mean, as, as you say there, kind of, sorry, Mark. Yeah, no, I was, I was just going to ask, um, so you mentioned that it sort of was born out of um, the celebration of the of the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and of Frederick Douglass, that's why it, you know, occurs in February in the United States, and I was just wondering, I mean, how did most African-American leaders feel about the celebration of, uh, of these two figures um, and the focus on both of them, both obviously entire, very different, um, one being white, obviously? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting to see, particularly in the 60s, when you start to see like a new generation of kind of nationalist oriented black historians and their relationship to both of these figures. So with Frederick Douglass, you see him, you know, previously he was seen as a statesman and now he's very much more seen as like a radical abolitionist. And um, the kind of speeches that people refer to are much more militant. Um, and he's, he's kind of reframed as like almost a precursor to to the black power advocates of the 60s. That's the way that he's kind of understood. Um, Lincoln's history is, is a little bit more contested. Um, so 
black uh, power or black nationalist historians of the 1960s take an increasingly negative opinion on on Lincoln. Um, but by this point, you know, it's kind of February's the, February's the deal. Uh, so we, it's not going to it's not going to change. But what we certainly see is is less of an emphasis on on Abraham Lincoln um, as the black uh, history movement and the idea of Black History Month has developed. Um, so, you know, certainly the 1910s, 1920s early on, there's very much more of an emphasis on on Lincoln. Um, at least that's the way that it seems in, in a lot of instances of, of commemoration. So as you mentioned there, kind of your Black History Month, you know, as an officially named event, uh, has the kind of like seal of approval uh, you know, bestowed upon it by the white establishment uh, in 1976, you know, the year of America's bicentennial and all that goes along with it. And, you know, as we've already kind of mentioned, the mid-1970s is a pretty tumultuous time for the United States. You know, so what's, I mean, what's the legacy of the civil rights movement into the 1970s? What other rights movements have emerged and what's the politics of the period, Mark? Yeah, I mean, I'll let James speak with with reference to the, the the civil rights movement in the seventies. I'll maybe just touch a wee bit on on the politics of the era. I mean, the nineteen seventies for me at least are are sort of a politically a decade where everything is in flux. Um, sort of old certainties in politics have been questioned. Perhaps a wee bit similar to what's going on just now, where people don't really know where the chips are going to fall. Uh, it's not a decade of liberalism of or conservatism, Republican or Democrat. I mean, but both parties still contain their liberal and conservative wings. And it's a decade that seems to me that events overtake everything. Sort of politic, politicians are besieged by economic pressures that they hadn't faced since World War II. Pressures left over from the 1960s. Um, you've got the rise of the, of, of the second wave feminist movement. Even the sort of nascent gay rights movement coming around. Um, and also in terms of race specifically, um, you've very much got the anti-busing movement um very much again which emerges in such liberal bastions such as massachusetts and, and, and remains a topic that's cons- that's uh, controversial today but on the other hand you've got the nixon administration pushing racial desegregation that uh, and, and schools and dabbling in affirmative action programs so it's a very it's a mixed bag in the 1970s but i'll let james speak specifically on the on the civil rights um side of it um thanks so yeah i mean in terms of civil rights um earlier i mentioned you know people like stephen tuck uh peniel joseph they've tried to push back against this idea of a kind of declension narrative so black power is part of kind of inevitable decline of 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 black activism and and scholars have started to stress you know actually a lot of activism is happening in the 1970s um whether that's through black intellectual think tanks like the organization of the black world um or whether it's through kind of a a shift to or a shift away from kind of just focusing on civil rights to a more international perspective of of the black freedom struggle um i think as well you so you mentioned nixon um nixon is probably a good example of of this almost like a split personality um, (laughs) in terms of civil rights activism so you know nixon is you know in some ways he's he's very clearly anti-civil rights uh in terms of racial busing um shifting kind of the onus of federal government, um, coercion, talking about um, the kind of Southern strategy, which obviously helps him to come to power. Then in other ways, um, you know, he the, his black capitalism initiatives, as an example um, of ways in which he might be seen as as kind of quite pro-civil rights um, in some instances. Um, so he's, he's, he's kind of a, a strange individual, Nixon, in terms of his relationship to civil rights. And I think that's probably a, a good example of the, the broader tensions that are, uh, underpinning the civil rights uh, movement during the 70s. 
I was just wondering, do you think there's a sense, uh, uh, and I can't think of a better way to word this, uh, maybe by the 70s the reason we don't think of it as much is it's just no longer the sort of sexy subject or something that, in terms of it, that, is, that it is in the 1960s, that maybe it's working through these institutions, which is a, a little less exciting than, you know, marching mm. over this bridge or something like that. Not exciting, that's the wrong word, but I hope you get what I mean. Um, yeah, I think I think that's a, I think it's a fair point. I mean, that idea of this shift from protest to politics, and um, you know, people who move from being on the front lines of activism in the sixties, you know, these people they grow up, um, they become institutionalized, and a lot, as you say, and that often that is not as exciting as the kind of sens- sensational images that we see from Selma or from earlier activists. Um, does that mean that the movement is is not still going on? Um, not necessarily. It just means that it's being reframed in a way that maybe media narratives haven't caught up to. Um, and, you know, people have one image of what civil rights activism is. And as that changes, as that shifts, um, interest in that starts to to maybe die away a little bit. Is there a, a perception in, in white America, do you think, in this period that the civil, the civil rights movement has achieved its aims? That, great, we've had the, the Civil Rights Act of 64, we've had the voting rights that's the problem solved. Everything's sorted now. Is that? Do you think that's a, a wide, widespread kind of way of thinking about it? Um, I think so. Yeah, and, and certainly you can see that in the Nixon successes in terms of the Southern strategy, and you see these very real white resentments to um, you know, like we've we've got the Voting Rights Act, we've got the Civil Rights Act. Like, what more do these people want? Um, <laughs> I think that is very much a sentiment that um, characterizes a lot of the nineteen seventies. Um, and obviously we can see that that's, you know, there's obviously there's still significant racial inequities in the 1970s and you still see um, active um, attacks through through busing and through these kind of programs on civil rights. Um, but the way that it's framed in terms of the media, you, there's certainly um, a fatigue, I would say, in, of civil rights activism because it, it's often, you know, this has been going on a long time, right? I mean, if we look back to it, often Brown versus Board is seen as the kind of the, the moment um, where civil rights becomes kind of a the national issue again um, by the mid seventies you know that 's twenty twenty years prior so it's there 's a sense that, that you have a generation of of Americans who 've grown up knowing nothing but the civil rights struggle, and at some point you know public there 's a sense of fatigue and public interest starts to starts to drop away yeah. fascinating uh, i mean so I suppose the one thing moving moving on to like sort of how Black History Month has been received. I mean, to what extent have African Americans bought into Black History Month? I mean, you sent us a a fascinating roundtable discussion to read in advance of this, and there was a real mix of views in there. You know, from cynicism and sort of bitter feelings towards Black History Month, whereas other black writers were saying they saw it as a chance to really celebrate their blackness even even more than they would in everyday life. And I, I mean, I guess this isn't really surprising. You know, African-Americans are, of course, a huge diverse group um, and there's bound to be diverse views. But I'm wondering if, if you've noticed uh, whether views on Black History Month are dictated by, like, class or geography. Does it, you know, uh, does it differ for Southern and Northern African-Americans or any other identifier? In my own reading, I thought I came across a sort of element of class resentment towards the sort of so-called talented 10th of African-Americans, your Jackie Robinsons, your Rosa Parks, your Frederick Douglasses, who are, who are often celebrated during the month. But, you know, I, I, I might be completely wrong in, in, in seeing that. Um, no, I, I think it's a, a, good, a good point. There's certainly class tensions um, 
you know, in the, in the same way that class tensions underpin any any form of historical commemoration, um, you, you certainly see that. Um, and also the way that black history is kind of institutionalized through these organizations like the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. Um, so on the one hand, you have kind of formal or um, institutionalized versions of black history being promoted. Um, and then on the other hand, you kind of have more of a grassroots interpretation. Um, and one good example of this is if you look at the the movement to establish a holiday for Dr. Martin Luther King, um, the way in which King's legacy is is framed by people like Ronald Reagan, who looks to reframe King as like a champion of colorblind conservatism, essentially, um, to activists like grassroots activists who look to stress, um, as you as you said earlier, this idea of King, you know, his his emphasis on um, economics and is almost kind of like a radical socialism or humanism um, and also people like Coretta Scott King and the King estate who have a very vested interest in you know presenting King in a way that's palatable to a white audience while trying to maintain some of that radicalism um, so it's, it's it's kind of a, a difficult question I mean certainly class is, is an important part of this and um, more recently as well a, a really fascinating aspect of this is the extent to which actually demographically who is and who isn't considered to be black American has changed. Um, so, you know, if we look at the 1965 immigration act and, and post then, um, you know, the, the number of, of black African migrants of black Caribbean migrants into the United States um, has significantly increased, you know, in 1980, the African born population of the U S was about a little bit less than 200,000 um, in 2009. Uh, when, when Obama was elected, it was 1.5 million. Um, and how does that, I mean, that those people have a history that isn't necessarily a kind of African-American narrative. And Obama himself has talked about this. So he is, you know, the son of a black Kenyan diplomat and a white woman. Um, and he is classified as African-American. But to what extent is his personal story different from Michelle Obama, who's descended from enslaved African-Americans in the South Carolina low country? You know, it's a very different personal narrative. And I think one of the most interesting things in how Black History Month is framed is Increasingly, you have members of the African-American community um, whose, sto- whose stories, whose personal stories don't necessarily line up to the way in which Black History Month historically has been framed or commemorated. And is that leading to a kind of like greater connections between kind of, you know, Black History Month and kind of like post-World War II decolonization and the kind of independence in sub-Saharan Africa? And, and all that went on there from kind of you know 1945 onwards is is that is that are the two things becoming much more interconnected the African American story and the story of colonialism and independence? Um, yeah, I think that's definitely the case. Um, and like a lot of the the research that I do comes out of Black Power Studies as kind of a, a subfield of of um, civil rights history. And certainly recently, I mean, uh, Sean Malloy this year is is he's got a book called Out of Oakland: Black Party, Black Panther Party Internationalism During the Cold War, and that's very much a you know it's, that's an indicator of kind of the broader trend where you start to see civil rights and black power as part of kind of third world struggles or as part of decolonization or de- um, anti imperialist movements uh, just internationally. Yeah, and and maybe that's a good point as well to bring in the clip that we started the episode with uh, with uh, Morgan Freeman. I'm, I'm sure some listeners may have recognised his voice. Um, talking about you know the fact that he doesn't want to be identified as black, he doesn't want to other people to identify as white. He doesn't want a Black History Month because it's insulting um, to have a, a Black History Month. I mean, 
I, I found it interesting in a couple of ways. I mean, first of all, he's 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 dislike for Black History Month as a thing at all, um, but also his 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 idea of not talking about race, which you know, if you, which I think is very much of African American activists to me. Um, otherwise, racism gets buried if we try and pretend that you know we're, we're all the same. Um, I mean, is this maybe a generational difference that's going on here, or is this you know? just everybody holds a different opinion um i think like there's certainly a generational element to it um also i mean freeman is speaking from a position of privilege in this situation um you know he's a heterosexual black man um who is certainly a lot wealthier than most of the african-american people um who may be commemorating black history month in a different way um so the the problem with not necessarily you know morgan freeman has his opinion and obviously that's not an issue in itself. What happens is that his status as an influential um, black actor means that this opinion is taken up and it's taken as scripture by, you know, p- particularly more conservative white media outlets um, as a justification for why we, d- we don't talk about Black History Month. Yeah. But then that becomes connected to uh, broader debates. So, you know, why do we have Black History Month? Why do we have affirmative action? You know, it's not just, you can't read that kind of, conversation in isolation is very much part of these broader debates do you feel that that kind of this kind of idea that oh we should all just be be colorblind and we should ignore you know race and that's the way to resolve that do you think that feeds into kind of like you know modern trends like we see uh black lives matter emerging as a movement because of institutionalized and systematic police violence against the african-american community but then you have the response to that in terms of the the hashtags on twitter like all lives matter and do you think that's a a much more kind of like negative capturing of this idea of colorblindness and we should just ignore race um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what if you have an expletive button on, on your podcast, so I probably won't get into what exactly I think about colour blind that, that I kind of ideology. But um, we're already listed on iTunes as it, <laughs> anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. So this idea of colour blindness is uh, my interpretation of it is um, it's it's a, a willfully ignorant position to take um, because it's not. So one problem with that idea is that it it very much neglects continuing disparities and inequities um, within racial justice, uh, within policing, within the criminal justice system, within wealth disparity. You know, all of these things, these hard um, statistics and this hard evidence that tells us that racial inequities still exist. Um, and also it, it, it gives, it, you know, it lacks a sense of history, I would argue, this idea of colorblindness. Um, you know, if you look at the history of, so we're going to talk a little bit later about advertising. Um, if you have 30 years of African-American models being fairly representative in advertising, that doesn't offset, you know, centuries of active uh, inequality and oppression and segregation and victim, you know. So there's, yeah, I mean, this idea of colorblindness is problematic certainly um i think for a lot of people it comes from maybe a good or well-intentioned place but i think a lot of the time it lacks a historical context which makes it very dangerous i could not agree more yeah and make that all three and so black history month uh, also eventually makes the transition to the eastern side of the atlantic so i mean how how and why does it emerge uh in britain and when does it emerge in britain 
Um, okay, yeah. So, so Black History Month in in the UK, um, most people most people kind of formally trace it back to the 1980s. Um, it's celebrated in October, uh, not February. Um, I mean, mind, I, I'm not exactly sure why it's celebrated in October. Um, there's a lot of kind of conflicting reports from what I've read in terms of why it's in October. Um, the the best information that I've seen is that it it kind of corresponds with the, the roughly with the start of the academic year um but as for kind of individual birthdays um i'm not exactly sure or individual events to commemorate um in terms of why it happens in the 1980s so first of all why it happens later um i mean the institutionalization of black history month in the uk uh, in the united states is very much connected to the influence of black studies um and the kind of development of black studies in the academy um, during the late 60s and early 70s. And uh, that's very much something that doesn't exist in the UK for a number of reasons. Um, there's a much smaller black British population community than there is in the United States. Um, it's a kind of a history that's, that's less kind of established. Um, although obviously, you know, recent documentaries by the BBC and uh, black documentary filmmakers have shown that, you know, black British history in the UK goes back you know, it's the Roman period and, and earlier. Um, in terms of the 1980s, I mean, I personally would take a little bit of a cynical view and say that in some ways it's a response to anxieties about um, Black British frustrations. Um, so the early part of the 80s, you have, you know, the 1980s St. Paul riots, 1981 riots across the country, you know, particularly in Toxteth, uh, Brixton, Chapeltown, Mossside, um, and then other riots into the 1980s. So in some ways, the establishment of Black History Month can almost be seen as like a uh, kind of had a gesture of friendship or goodwill, if if you like, a kind of formal recognition of this. Yeah, I mean, it's something that's interesting. I mean, living, uh, well, recording this, like not far from Toxteth, which is, you know, still remembered by by a lot of people for the, the riots in the 1980s. And I'm interested, I noted that recently in the John Moore's where I teach, there have been posters up mm. for Black History Month, obviously, you know, the the February kind of uh, month uh, is, is significant, but the posters were of uh, Malcolm X and mm. Angela Davis, which I found very interesting. Produced by the the student union to you know, to celebrate more radical and at times controversial figures. Yeah, I mean, I think this is very much you know going back to the idea of Black history or Black studies being institutionalised in the US. There's a very there's a much stronger sense of an educational underpinnings for black history and what black history means and its importance um i mean in the uk we don't necessarily have that obviously kehinde andrews and birmingham city university they're trying to do that with the first black studies program um but you know a lot of the history that we learn in school in terms of race it's either transplanted from other places so often the united states you know often we learn about civil rights and, and, and america is, is our reference point or we don't talk about it at all and you, and you see that reflected i mean um a couple of years ago there was a poll of the great the greatest uh, British or the black Brit- Britons. Uh, I can't, it was a news, I think it was a newspaper. I can't remember which newspaper did the poll. Um, but so for example, like Miss Dynamite came out, I think she was in the top 10, or the <laughs> top 15. And like, I like Miss Dynamite as much as the next person. But um, if you're, if you're positioning Miss Dynamite in a kind of top 10 of, of, of black British pioneers or, or whatever, um, maybe that speaks to the sense of, you know, black British history is something that's radically underrepresented and is something that people don't know about the context and the richness of that history. Mm. So, I mean, James, in your kind of in your notes for this episode, and this is kind of like transitioning from you know how it came over to Britain, you pointed out the way in which Black History Month has been co-opted 
uh, by various corporations in the form of, of advertising. And so now we're going to play a couple of examples uh, from uh, McDonald's and AT&T just now to just give you a flavour of, of what some of these adverts are like. Chess originated in Africa, but did you know that the first mod on the Statue of Liberty was a black woman? Hey, there's plenty of black history facts for everyone. Now McDonald's is proud to offer little-known black history facts to celebrate Black History Month. Two volumes filled with inspiring facts about our history, and there's only one place to buy them. Because McDonald's knows it's not just African-American history, it's American history. We knew that. Did somebody say McDonald's? Our history isn't just something that lives in the past. We carry it with us every day, in our minds, in our hearts, and even in our hands. This Black History Month, AT&T 28 Days is looking to inspire the next generation with the Making History Happen Challenge. Find out how you can get involved at att.com slash 28 days. So, could you give us a little bit of detail on this? Is it just opportunistic behaviour on the part of corporations or a kind of a genuine commitment to the causes of equality and recognition? Um, yeah, I think this is definitely a good question and it's one that I am constantly changing changing my opinion of uh, because I, I come across one set of, of advertisements and I think, oh no, these are quite, these are well done. They're done in a collaboration with, with, uh, with black scholars and, you know, they're, they're kind of historically relevant uh and then i come across another example and i'm like this is this is horrendous so I, I think often it's it's kind of case by case um institutional company by company um i think first of all it's important to note that this you know what we might describe as the capitalization of black history you know it's always been part of this black history mo- movement so uh recently there was a, a great uh, lorenzo green who was a his black historian who who worked with um carter g woodson uh, he there was a book published called Selling Black History for Carter G. Woodson. It was basically a, a diary by Green, um, and it was about how they went through the South, um, trying to they had merchandise and they had kind of content that they were trying to sell and to raise funds for the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. Um, so the idea of of black like marketing black history has always been has always been there, um, but increasingly kind of white or, uh, white corporations or white owned corporations and. and Big companies have started to use black history as, as in their advertising campaigns, and that can be situated within this broader shift uh, towards marketing and then the awareness of the importance or kind of economic power of African Americans as a discrete consumer block. Um, so this this really kind of starts. You see it in in the first half of the twentieth century. You start to see this appreciation of, of what's described as the Negro market, and then the kind of post World War Two, and when you you start to see the emergence of a larger black middle class. Um, you really see this this more and more, and the advertisers really start to turn um, towards advertising um, and using African American um, models and appealing to African American consumers through their advertising. Um, so, yeah, I mean, is there, is there a particular example of a, of a company that you'd say actually has shown sort of good corporate responsibility um, on, on these sorts of issues? Um, so, I, I probably, I, I think Pepsi Cola is probably a good example. Um, or at least an example of a company that tries from quite early on um, is kind of in some ways it's ahead of the curve in thinking about um, corporate responsibility and uh, relationship to race. Uh, so often um, historically, 
Pepsi is often seen as kind of a black drink and Coca-Cola is kind of seen as a, as a white drink. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you can trace that back to, you know, Coca-Cola is created by a Confederate soldier as a, you know, medical ailment or treatment essentially. Um, so there's, there's elements of that, but there's also elements you can see that in the relationship between these companies and African-American communities. Uh, so Pepsi Cola they, they have kind of a, a Negro market team relatively early on um, prior to World War II. Uh, and then Pepsi-Cola are one of the first big companies to really kind of push towards using more African-American models in their adverts. And you also see it through um, advertising, like black history advertising. So in the 1960s, Pepsi-Cola do a series of long-form records um, and they're recorded with an uh, kind of collaboration uh, with prominent black historians like John Hope Franklin. Um, and these kind of campaigns are extended. And then you start to see, you know, Pepsi-Cola sponsoring events at historically black colleges and universities, Pepsi-Cola doing Black History Month sweepstakes, um, these kind of things. Um, you know, obviously at, at every level of that, there is a corporate opportunism. Um, but also, you know, many of these campaigns do actually have an important educational role. Um, and I think that we can't just dismiss that role. Um, so yeah, it's it's an interesting tension. So there's there's always kind of limits to ad- advertising, and I mean, is this something that's applied to to Black History Month? Um, okay, so I mean, in terms of the idea of limits, um, I'd probably take that in two ways. Um, so the first way would be just what are the limits to acceptable advertising behaviour in using Black History as kind of an advertising strategy, um, and I think. I think I think there are there's obviously limits to that, and I think generally, you know, this kind of rank corporate opportunism often gets shouted down. So Martin Luther King Day, um, often people try and do Black Friday sales on Martin Luther King Day, uh, which is pretty gross, uh, and usually that kind of gets pretty negative press. Um, in terms of who is and who isn't part of Black History Month and the limits that way. Um, we saw an interesting example in the UK recently where there was a very big backlash to Zayn Malik uh, being chosen as the face of Black History Month in the UK. Um, so Zayn Malik is obviously kind of half Pakistani, um, half white. And there was a, a response that, you know, to what extent is Zayn Malik representative of the black British community? Um, and that, that gets into a very interesting debate in the UK about this idea of political blackness. Uh, which we don't really have time to get into here, but it's kind of another, this idea of limiting. Um, A second point about this idea of limitations is to what extent, I mean, advertisers don't really introduce new or original historical perspectives, right? They generally just reinforce existing historical perspectives. So the limitations or biases that we see in black history and its representation are exacerbated and reinforced and reproduced through advertising. Uh, So one of the big Examples of this is black history has been quite gendered. Um, so if you look at corporate advertisements or like black history calendars produced by Seagram's or Coca-Cola in the 70s, as an example, overwhelmingly male in terms of the people represented. Um, and also you see those the same limitations in terms of uh, you know gender, in terms of sexuality, um, in terms of other things that are maybe seen as outside of a boundary of, of respectable race politics or the way that we think about black history. Cool. You, know, you were telling us that when you teach students about this subject, you, you have a sort of quiz uh, to try and see if they can guess which uh, tagline used during Black History Month matches the company. Uh, so we're going to see if myself and Malcolm can do better than the students. Um, I'm slightly worried in this regard. <laughs> we won't. 
<laughs> so first, if you could maybe give us a quick example to get us going. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, this is, um, it's, I think it's just quite a good way of, of showing how corporations try to connect themselves or their own branding strategy to the use of black history. So uh, one example would be Colgate, obviously toothpaste, um, a tagline that Colgate had um, is bring smiles this black history month. Uh, so you can you can see straight away the connection there. Um, I should say that these are all adverts. Um, I don't know if you want to put them up on the on the website afterwards uh, or link to them. These are all web um, adverts that are taken from Ebony Magazine, um, which is the kind of black consumer magazine. So it's not just the taglines, but it's all the, also the context of where these adverts are, are being shown or being produced. Um, okay. Okay. So I've got so I've got four companies, um, and I was I hope you can try and guess some of the taglines from them. So Avon uh, Cosmetics, that's the first one. Um, Eastern Airlines, um, we've got Hennessy, uh, Cognac, and then U.S. Marines. Uh, so obviously U.S. Army. Um, so I'll give you a tagline, and then see if you can try and match it up to to one of those. Um, I'm betting on Malcolm getting Avon right. You know the amount the amount of packages I've seen at his door. So. <laughs> okay, um, so the first one, uh, only a few have the honor of making history. U.S. Marines. That's U.S. Marines. Yeah. U.S. Marines. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's the tagline for U.S. Marines. Okay, so you ready for the next one? Yep. Okay, so this tagline is "Take our roots to your roots." <laughs> Eastern Airline. No, no, hang on, hang on. Roots. Uh, oh no, this is a Eastern Airlines. I'm going to stick with. Yeah, I'm going with Malcolm Eastern. Yeah, so that's Eastern Airlines. Um, so you see a lot of, um, particularly airline. Um, well, within kind of transport generally, there's there's a kind of interesting thing that's happening in the 70s because you have a vastly or highly uh, developing or expanding black middle class. So on the one hand, American Airlines like Delta. American Airlines, Eastern Airlines are very eager to, to kind of cater to this expanding clientele. So Eastern, Delta, a lot of these other airlines, they produce black history themed adverts. Um, and it's like, you know, take our airlines to go and see the Christmas Attucks mon- uh, monument um, or take it to see, you know, legacies of, of Selma or, you know, take it to these, to these places. Um, and then on the other hand, you have Greyhound, which is largely working towards a kind of working class clientele. Um, so Greyhound disproportionately African-Americans use Greyhound. So Greyhound is also trying to get on board. So you see the way in which Black History Month kind of goes across class boundaries um, in the transport sector. Um, okay, so the next one is celebrating our beautiful heritage. I'm, I'm you know, see- really, really, I think for us, I think we'd prefer to say cognac, but well, I think if we're being honest, that's got to be Avon. I would, I would go with that, yes. Uh, yeah, so that is that is Avon, um, and then the final one now. Uh, so you already know know who it is, um, but it's uh, the tagline is is never blend in celebrating Black History Month. That's terrible. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so that's that's Hennessy, um, and obviously uh, just just before we we started recording, um, we talked a little bit about Hennessy adverts and connection to African American community through like rap artists. If you're talking about Snoop Dogg um, or other um, artists, and that, that's kind of a connection that you can trace back into the 60s and 70s through these kind of Black History adverts. Um, so yeah, you kind of start to see the historical context of where these advertising relationships kind of come from. Well, that was that's interesting because I, I I always wondered where the why the focus on on Hennessy 
as a drink within a lot of like rap came mm. from. Yeah, I was always curious about how that emerged. Yeah, I, yeah, you can you can see it with um, things like Seagram as well, and like certain distilled uh, spirits or, or gins or, or cognacs. Because um, often within African American community, there's very much a sense that you have to buy the best, so you have to get premium things. Um, so there's kind of this tension. Like on the one hand, advertisers are trying to say, you know, our product, you're able to afford it. Um, if African Americans are like disproportionately lower income. But at the same time, they're trying to say, you know, this is uh, kind of a, a premium product. Um, and at the same time, they're trying not to alienate white consumers um, through these appeals to African-American consumers. So it's it's a, it's an interesting balancing act that's happening. So that's fascinating how, how Black History Month intersects with advertising and all these other issues. So, so to, to wrap our, up our discussion, which I found absolutely fascinating, what does the current state of Black History Month and the debate surrounding it tell us about you know the place of African Americans in U.S. society? Um, I mean, I would say that that Black History Month, um, both in the both in, in the United States and in the UK, um, is this moment as is, is both of celebration and reminder of neglect or continuing inequities. Um, so, on the one hand, we can and we should celebrate the uh, the contributions um, that black people in the UK and the United States have, have made to kind of the development of society, development of culture, development of politics. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't have to continue to face these kind of hard questions. Um, so what does it mean when, you know, Obama becomes the first black president of the United States? Um, but then at the same time, you have data coming out from the Federal Reserve in Boston that says the average median net worth of a white family in Boston is a quarter of a million dollars. And the average median net worth of a U.S. black family in Boston is eight dollars. So, you know, it's you, we can't ignore those kind of disparities. Um, in terms of people like uh, Morgan Freeman and this argument against Black History Month, um, I think maybe we could end with a with a quote from Carter G. Woodson, you know, the, the father of Black History Month. Um, so, you know, Woodson Woodson said that if a race has no history, it has no worthwhile tradition. It becomes a negligible factor in the thought of the world, and it stands in danger of being exterminated. Um, and that's very much Woodson's articulation of why Black History Month is, is important. And I think that's still very much why Black History Month is necessary. You know, we need that historical context, uh, or context, not just to continue to address racial inequities in the present, but also to have a sense of, of the history and that struggle. I think that's a fantastic point to end upon. Thank you very much, James, uh, for all your expertise and commentary there. That that was fantastic. Thank you to Mark uh, for your input and questions and everything. Uh, I felt I've had a very easy ride uh, in this particular episode. Uh, next month, uh, we'll be back to discuss the role of religion in the American Civil War. So thank you very much, James, and thank you, Mark. Thank you. about there's something evolving wherever may come the world keeps revolving they say the next big thing is here that the revolution's near but to me it seems quite clear that it's all just a little bit of history repeating
But it don't know if it's coming or 